Welcome to Spooky Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar Magazine, sponsored by Phi Beta Kappa. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastek, and I can't keep up that voice for more than about five seconds. This week, in honor of the best holiday on the calendar, we are revisiting one of my favorite episodes, a deep dive into that classic trope of Halloween, the vampire. Hope you enjoy. You know the ones. Pale, sleep in coffins during the day, hunt people at night, maybe have a spot of blood on a suspiciously sharp canine, occasionally transform into bats. Yeah, those ones. Stories of blood-sucking monsters have haunted humanity for centuries, even thousands of years. But the figure of the vampire might be a bit more specific than that. The vampire was born when Enlightenment rationality met Eastern European folklore. That's Nick Groom's argument. He's known as the prof of goth, and his new book, The Vampire, A New History, makes the case that vampires are a uniquely modern phenomenon, that they rose from the grave at the same time as philosophy, theology, forensic medicine, and literature were posing specific questions during the Enlightenment. What does it mean to be human? What does it mean to be a blood-sucking vampire? Nick Groom joins us from Exeter to open some coffins for answers about the vampire. Thank you for joining us. It's a pleasure. So there are a lot of stories about supernatural bloodsuckers out there going back thousands of years, and there have been quite a few histories of the vampire, too. But in your imagination, the vampire is different. He's got a birthday, so to speak. It's a very nice way of putting it. Yes, the vampire does have a birthday. Um, so you're quite right to say that, um, that blood-sucking demons go back um, throughout different societies and civilizations, back hundreds if not thousands of years. Classical Greece, Rome, uh, the medieval period in Europe, and so forth. But they're not vampires. Uh, so vampires have a very precise origin, a precise genesis. Effectively, they're discovered. They're discovered uh, on the borders of the Habsburg or the Austria-Hungary Empire, in 1725, and they appear in a report made by a medical officer working for the army on the activities of various um, Serbian soldiers who dig up a corpse and uh, put a stake through its heart and then cremate it. And they do this because the corpse has allegedly uh, risen from the grave and has murdered eight people. So that's the first real recorded instance of something called a vampire, and the, uh, the, the report carries the word vampire. Um, in European history, and the report gets taken to Vienna um, and is then reprinted in a newspaper and then spreads across the whole of Europe. And you argue that vampires don't make sense outside of a world that emphasizes reason, empiricism, and the Enlightenment, that, you know, the vampire could not have been born, really, in any other era. Yeah. What is it about that era that makes the vampire so timely? So the vampire first emerges, as I say, at the borders of the Habsburg Empire in the 1720s, and it emerges as a medical phenomenon. It doesn't emerge um, as a strange instance of folklore. It emerges as a, as a physical body. In fact, itself, it's a body of evidence. And so it immediately appeals to this rational, reasoning, intellectual project that really characterizes the Enlightenment. Uh, it also appears to have been witnessed by many people who are willing to testify. So in that sense as well, it's provable 
and yet at the same time it doesn't fit into the convenient categories of um, human, non-human, of living or the dead, of natural or supernatural. So it's really pushing the boundaries of thought and understanding. I mean, vampires are in a sense human because they're the, the vampirized corpses of humans. But they're clearly not human because of the ways in which they act, particularly at this stage, which is um, strangling their victims, draining their blood, and then infecting them with vampirism. In the same way, they're natural because they're physical, so they're not like, they're not like ghosts. Um, but they're also supernatural because they appear to be able to leave the grave, they can pass through locked doors, and in, in any case, they're dead. Um, so they pose a quandary for theologians as well, appearing to offer some insight into the afterlife, but one that's very dark um, and sinister and literally blood-curdling. And philosophers as well, who are very interested in the nature of evidence at this time, they really challenge the reliability of eyewitness accounts, even by large numbers um, of people. So it was taken very seriously. I mean, and that leads to my next question, which is, what's the political meaning of vampires at the time because they're very they're taken very seriously by the state and by people in these communities affected by them and there've been various reads from contemporary theorists about what vampires meant politically so what's your take on that well what i think is particularly striking is that almost immediately they're seen as a political metaphor and so very quickly the idea of uh, vampires as being related to uh, corrupt government ministers to those who are exploiting the labouring classes uh, within the army as commissioned officers, people who are trading and working the markets, um, dealing in property, um, even theatre critics um, and booksellers uh, are described as vampires because they're preying on poets or on the public. And then the French philosophers get involved, and Voltaire um, argues that you can find uh, vampires throughout the church, uh, for example. So in that sense, vampires are effectively upwardly mobile. So they start off among, you know, the, the peasant villages in Eastern Europe, and very quickly they start going up the social scales. And there's, there's even a racehorse named Vampire, a racehorse belonging to the Earl of Sandwich. Oh my goodness, I never thought of vampires as like the first gentrifiers, but there they are. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm afraid they are. So, I mean, one of the central reasons why the vampire was able to capture the imagination so strongly is the relationship with blood. So let's talk about blood. Uh, you say it oozed through 18th century thought, and it certainly oozes through every story of vampires. So what does blood mean in the context of the vampire's story and the era in which the vampire was born? Well, there are lots of superstition around blood, as, as one would expect, really. So, you know, bathing in blood, um, drinking blood. We're supposed to be able to cure um, things like um, epilepsy. Uh, for example, and that belief carried on uh, well into the 19th century. And this is something that, despite uh, Harvey's discovery of the circulation of blood, is still an enigma to the natural scientists, to the medical scientists um, of the Enlightenment period, because it clearly has life-giving properties, but how it actually uh, manages to do so, what the actual spark, the vital spark of life might be, it remains a mystery. But blood certainly seems to pervade 
um, a lot of thinking at this time. So the vampire really, I think, sort of typifies the fact that blood is this organic life-giving substance uh, that's under scrutiny from scientists. But you also get experiments with blood, and this is uh, one of the more peculiar areas of Enlightenment science, is that even in the 17th century, Christopher Wren injected his dog with wine to see whether he could get it drunk. And then there was a debate about whether um, injecting blood's um, from different breeds of dogs would actually change their character. So would a spaniel become more like a mastiff if it had the blood of a mastiff um, injected into it? But the experiments and the discussion didn't stop there. There's actually a man called Arthur Koger who was apparently very freakish in his spirit and he had the blood of a lamb injected into him to try to calm him down. Um, and the amazing thing was he actually survived this particular transfusion although he thought that it had changed his character. And um, he asked the Royal Society for some form of charity and signed himself Arthur Koga the sheep because uh, he felt that he'd become a different species, he'd become a, um, a hybrid, if you like. So this sort of fascination runs through uh, the 18th centuries of those sorts of qualities um, of blood. And the vampire really rides on that tide. So it's very much um, a modern monster. It's not something that's coming from the remote mists of time. It's something that is really characterising anxieties about medical science and debates and about how the body is being defined by scientists. What's really interesting, too, about blood is that it's used as this metaphor politically, too, sort of around that time and then leading into the 19th century. And that relationship, I guess, in like the blood in politics and blood in literature sort of feed off one another and then create all of these fantastic metaphors later on. Yes. Well, the whole notion of blood is tied to hereditary. In other words, one's bloodline. Um, and that's a very powerful part um, of political thinking at the time. So it's linked to the Whig Party um, and also, in fact, the Tory party in Britain in the 18th century and, uh, and certainly into the 19th century as well. Uh, because with blood comes status and land and political power. So it's very important that those bloodlines are recognised and that they are kept pure. So there's a real fear of tainted blood, of misignation, of losing those bloodlines, because it's not just you know, family honour and reputation and, or personal wealth that's at stake. It's actually the stability of the country, um, and not just the country, in fact, the stability of the, of the, of the empire and, and world trade as well. So blood politically is something that looms large, not only through vampire tales um, of the period, but in fact through a lot of Gothic uh, literature that's very much concerned with inheritance and succession um, and wills. Um, and dynastic unity and stability and how that can be threatened. Right. And then all of those concerns about blood and politics eventually make their way into vampire stories and across the pond to England, where we get two of the most famous tales, John Polidori's The Vampire, published 200 years ago, and then later Bram Stoker's Dracula. So how does the vampire seep his way into literature and then into these landmark stories? Well, yes. Um, so John Polidori, as you say, publishes the first vampire tale in English in 1819. But the the stories, uh, the history um, of vampires uh, from the earlier 18th century had certainly been circulating um, in Britain before then. The big thing that Polidori does with a vampire is turn it into an aristocrat. 
Um, and he does so by basing it on Lord Byron. So Polidori had been Byron's physician, uh, partly because Byron was a hypochondriac, uh, but they eventually fell out. And Polidori, almost as an act of revenge, uh, rewrites a story that Byron had begun. The same summer, um, the same place that Frankenstein was inspired. Um, and uh, Polidori takes up Byron's tale, rewrites it, makes this Byronic figure, Lord Ruthven, the vampire at the centre of the story. And he's this uh, aristocratic, uh, very sinister, um, very predatory male um, who is after um, you know, young, innocent women. And so that's the big step that Polidori makes to move the vampire from being that middle-class metaphor for exploitation into an even more powerful role. And that figure of the vampire um, certainly runs through the 19th century. And there, there are a lot of vampire stories, some of them very, very popular, um, appearing in Penny Dreadfuls or Shilling Shockers, these weekly serials. And so there's a long tradition that leads up to Bram Stoker's Dracula in 1897. So what changes with Dracula? Because, as you pun, he's where so many bloodlines for the modern vampire begin. Well, Bram Stoker's Dracula is certainly a watershed. Uh, but as I say, it does very much emerge from a craze for vampires that had been prevalent for uh, for nearly 200 years. The medical material is still there. The forensic material is still there. Even legal material is still there. Um, so the vampire remains a very contemporary figure, um, despite the garlic and the crucifixes um, and those sorts of elements. Uh, you very often find, for example, doctors and physicians in these earlier vampire stories. Uh, they're very often complicated uh, by issues of inheritance and property rights. And that's something that Bram Stoker himself uses in the novel Dracula. Um, so lest we forget, you know, the reason why Jonathan Harker goes to visit um, Count Dracula is because Dracula is investing in property in Britain. Um, so he's, he's a speculator in real estate, um, if you like. And in fact, Harker says he's got such an eye for detail that Dracula would make a very good solicitor. Uh, <laughs> if anybody would like themselves to be represented by him. Um, and Dracula is also a novel that's very up to date in um, its use of technology, between the more supernatural technology of Dracula, such as telepathy and the modern telegraph. Um, it also has Kodak cameras in it, and it has blood transfusions um, and brain surgery and so forth. So it's a very, again, it's a very contemporary novel. And that, that's really, Bram Stoker, I think, exemplifies uh, that sense that the, that the vampire is a being of today. Um, it's not a being from the past. But really the main thing that Bram Stoker does is he writes at length. And although there had been vampire novels before, his uh, is a very extensive account gets virtually everything he can into it and in fact spent seven years uh, researching the figure of the vampire to do so. So it's, uh, it's a very significant work partly because of the magnitude and also uh, because it, it straight away starts influencing the theatre and of course very rapidly gets into film. And in that sense you know Stoke is very fortunate in his timing. He couldn't predict the rise of the cinema but the vampire is immediately attractive uh, to early filmmakers. And then we get straight into um, Nosferatu, and then the Hollywood movies of vampires, and subsequently into uh, later adaptations and in our own TV series today. So are 
the vampires of today and even of early cinema, are they wrestling with the same kinds of existential questions or is are the stakes a little bit different once we hit the 20th century? Well, that's a really interesting question because on the one hand, the vampire is, is simplified and becomes much less sophisticated. Of course, society changes and technology changes. But I think the most interesting vampires of the past few years are precisely those that do confront contemporary medical science and thinking. And so for a couple of examples, uh, there'd be uh, what are called the green vampires, um, such as uh, the vampire in uh, the BBC series Being Human, uh, that lives from blood from blood banks. So in that sense, he's an ethical vampire. So this is a way to try to get us thinking about the status of the human and the non-human, taking away, to a degree, the element that the vampire must necessarily prey on human victims. And you get that um, in true blood um, as well, where there's a blood substitute. It allows vampires to then become more accommodated uh, within human society. And that's posing similar questions. Of course, it's much more public in true blood about is it possible for humans to coexist with another intelligent humanoid being? Um, and there's a great deal in true blood about those questions um, of equality and otherness and what sort of problems that poses for individuals and for communities. So I think that, yes, certainly in the best hands, the vampire is still working as what I'd call a thought experiment on the nature of what it is and is not to be human. Do you think that there is like vampire saturation? Do you feel like the vampire has been leached of a little bit of its horror? Well, that's, I mean, Neil Gaiman um, actually comments on um, on this, and it's one of the reasons why he's written very little um, on the vampires. And also the, the radical philosopher Mark Fisher um, has commented that vampires are so familiar to us that in fact, you know, thinking about a black hole is a much more weird intellectual encounter. Um, well, yes and no, because I think if one actually came face to face with a vampire, one might feel rather different. I mean, certainly, I'd say from the middle of the 20th century, there's been vampire saturation. So the vampires never really went away. Um, they were there at a, at a very recognisable level um, of popular culture as a very malleable figure that can be moulded in different ways to reflect upon particular issues. And I think that the film The Hunger, uh, for example, the Susan Sarandon film in which um, David Bowie um, co-stars, is a very good example about how uh, the figure of the vampire can reflect anxieties um, about AIDS. So this is a film that was made in the 1980s, um, just as those particular fears were beginning to grip um, society. And um, So no, I don't think that we're, we're at vampire saturation. It reminds me rather of a writer in the mid-18th century, so we've had enough of the Gothic now, can we move on to something else? And it hadn't even started. <laughs> he hadn't even had the castle of Otranto, and he thought that it was all over. Um, so in, in, in that sense, um, I think the vampires are here to stay. For more of the gory details on what makes vampires such a juicy thought experiment, check out Nick Groom's book, The Vampire, A New History. We'll be back next week. Till then, take care and stay sharp. <laughs>